Good evening, and welcome to our fourth season entitled Dark Stories Noir, with tales centered around murder, mayhem, and intrigue. For tonight's episode, we follow a detective who, having been called in to investigate a body found underneath the bridge, is led down a path in which he may never return. We present to you, Candy. A telephone is ringing somewhere in the distance. I assume it's the neighbors across the way, the same ones that have the radio on and turned up all night long. But when the ringing starts again after a pause, it's only then I realize it's my phone ringing. My stomach sinks and I try to drown out the noise with my pillow. As the third round of rings begin, I lift myself off the couch, scrub my face with my hands, and prepare myself for another long night. Hello? I answer, trying to sound as tired as possible. Finally, the voice on the other end says, we've been ringing you for the last half an hour. Yeah, I reply. Yeah, the voice shouts back. Listen, the chief needs you down by the waterfront. Says your leave is over. The voice stops abruptly before concluding. Sadly, almost sympathetically. We've got another one for you. I don't answer, but nod through the receiver and hang up. Before moving away from the phone, I stare at the train ticket still lying on my desk. The express way to Texas. So close. I make my way to the bathroom. Pulling the string from the ceiling, a light flickers on and dances above me, swaying back and forth. For a brief second, the grime and mold between the tiles are exposed before hiding back into the shadows. I take a deep breath and look at myself in the mirror, and wonder how long it's been since I've slept. A month, maybe since my last case. I splash cold water on my face and grip the inside of my eyes tightly across the bridge of my nose. The waterfront. The bridge. Has it only been a month? I think back, trying to remember, but also trying to forget. It was midnight when I got the call, another cold and rainy night. By the time I got to the scene, late as usual, the rain had begun falling harder. The bridge above us began to flood, and the excess of water cascaded down, creating a waterfall against the arch opening. The crime scene had already been roped off, and the few onlookers that had gathered watched as our photographer circled the body, taking pictures. The quick flashes from the bulb and whizzing sound from the camera after each snap interrupted the dark and silence, like miniature bolts of lightning racing through the underpass. Unfazed by the audience and the roaming photographer, The coroner sat hunched next to the body, taking notes. Pulling my collar up against the cold, I looked out from under the bridge across the waterfront to the bright neon lights streaming from the buildings. Blinking and whirling, the lights advertised every desire from pizza to sex. I lit a cigarette and turned back to the crime scene before me, to the controlled chaos moving almost in slow motion. It was time to begin my night. Thrusting my hands deep in my raincoat, I'd made my way over to the body, my footsteps damp and sharp against the concrete. The coroner barely looked over his shoulder as I approached. Glad you could make it, the coroner remarked as soon as I was a few feet away. Ignoring the comment, I took another drag from my cigarette, then asked, what do we got here? Tragic, really, the coroner replied, taking a deep breath. A young woman, 18, maybe 19, it's hard to say in this light. 
Cause? I quickly asked. Gunshot to the head. Close range. The coroner answered back before adding again. Tragic. Witnesses? I asked. None, apparently. Not surprising, though, given how late it is. The coroner replied back without looking up. Unsurprising is right, I thought. Getting anyone to talk in this neighborhood is next to impossible. It's the type of place people come to blend in and be forgotten before heading back to their real life. I crouched down next to the corner to get a better view of our victim. She looked young, dressed unassuming like she didn't belong, like this wasn't supposed to be where she was going. At length we were both quiet, the only sound was of his writing and the rain to fill the void between us. Flicking my cigarette butt into a nearby puddle, I stood up. The coroner report wouldn't be ready for a few days, along with the photographs and any other information the officer gathered. Oh, I nearly forgot, the coroner said, turning back around to face me. From underneath his arm, he removed a clear envelope and handed it to me. My eyes instantly read the large red letter stamped across the envelope, saying, Evidence. It's everything I found on the victim's body, the coroner tells me, before turning away and resuming his notes. I nod in thanks and make my way back to the car, stopping briefly only to light another cigarette. But my hands had turned numb in the cold, and with the help of a breeze, I dropped the pack. Reaching down to pick them up, my eyes instantly dart to some candy wrappers laying next to a bench opposite the victim in the underpass, piled on top of each other like so many leaves. The wrappers themselves were almost dry. Curious, really. Fifteen minutes later, I'm back in my office behind my desk. Towel wrapped around my shoulders, whiskey in a tumbler, and the contents of the clear envelope dumped before me. Not much. A small billfold with two dollars in it, a compact, a receipt for a diner, and a folded up piece of paper. I flip on the desk lamp and unfold the paper. An overnight train ticket. One-way express to Texas, marked for 2 a.m. Why were you not at the station, I asked myself. And where was your luggage? And while the train ticket stood out, I also found it odd that the billfold lacked ID or pictures of any kind. Single, maybe. Running away, possibly. Still stranger, no keys. No car, no house or apartment. Nothing. Nothing to indicate where she would be returning to. Or perhaps where she was running from. I stare at the items on my desk for some time, trying to gain some clarity, but nothing comes together. I smooth out the train ticket again, reading it several times. So close, I think to myself. Picking up the diner receipt, I notice that two meals are listed, on the back a phone number. It leads to an apartment building downtown, a few blocks away from the bridge actually. I lie and tell the clerk who answered the phone I found the wallet on the street, which contained the number that as a concerned citizen, I was merely trying to reunite the item to its owner and describe the billfold in some detail. There was a long pause from the other end. For a moment I thought he had hung up, the static on the line sounding louder than it should. But then the clerk said, almost in a whisper, to meet him at the diner tomorrow at noon. The same diner the receipt had come from, then hung up. I leaned back in my chair. I was only a finger into my two fingers of whiskey when I began to drift off while listening to the train go by and the horns from the boat setting out to sea in the early morning dawn. The diner was easy enough to find. I had been there a few years back, a couple of times before relocating to the west side. It was a good place for bad coffee and lukewarm food. The place was virtually empty with only a few patrons sitting on the little round stools lining the counter, 
silently enjoying their liquid lunch with sardines and crackers. None of them seemed to notice my entrance. The waitress emerged from the kitchen, smiled, informed me that I was welcome to seat myself wherever I wished. I nodded back and made my way to one of the booths. But before I could select one, the bathroom door popped open, and out stepped a small man, balding with thick glasses, easily in his late fifties. He looked quickly over at the counter, then back at me before subtly motioning his head to join him in the back booth. Blowing the dust from the bottoms, the waitress placed two cups on the table, filling them with coffee. She lingers for a moment without speaking before heading back behind the counter to her silent customers. The bald man seems nervous, and for several minutes he fidgets with his spoon. Nervous, sure, but not for my presence, something else. This is about Amy, isn't it? He asks, resting his spoon in his mug. He continues the body found under the bridge last night. That was her, wasn't it? I tell him we have yet to identify the body. He looks out the large window next to the booth and watches the crowds of people going on about their day. Of course it was hers, he finally says. How else would you have gotten the phone number or known what diner to meet me at? He falls silent, staring at his hands wrapped around the cup of coffee. I light a cigarette and ease back further into the booth's seat. The waitress had returned, pen pressed against her little pad, primed and ready. She asks what we're in the mood for. My companion doesn't answer, head sunk low. I wave her away with a smile. She rolls her eyes but acquiesces, once again vanishing behind the counter. I wait till she was out of earshot before resuming my questions. I decide to play it soft, no need to push someone who's already willing to talk. The last thing I need is this guy to clam up and walk before I get anything useful. It doesn't take much prodding before my new friend opens up. He tells me the victim's name is Amy, that the first time he saw her was a few months ago, here at this very diner. She was by herself, sat at the back corner alone. She didn't speak to anyone, and considering her profession, he knew to leave well enough alone. For a second I was confused and asked what he meant by it. He puts it delicately. It was pretty obvious, he tells me. She was a working girl. He could tell by her clothes. After that, he continues, every so often for weeks, he would enter the diner and see her in the same spot. Was she always by herself, I ask. The bald man shakes his head, answering with a no. He saw her with another woman a few times, tall with red hair, and older than Amy. Her name was Candy, an account of her obsession with hard candy and her horrible habit of leaving her wrappers piled up. This he found out later from Amy. Candy was supposed to be her only friend, my companion says. She told him this one night. Did you ever speak to Candy, I press him. No, he says. And Amy never spoke to him when she was around. I finish my cigarette and wait for him to continue. Then one night, about a month ago, my companion continues. Amy began asking questions. I asked what type of questions. About my family and where I was from, he answers. What would she tell you, I inquired. Nothing specific, he replied. Mainly vague answers. Then about a week ago, she suddenly asked for my help. I leaned forward in the booth, asking what type of help. He took a long sip of coffee, by now almost cold, before continuing. She wanted out. She needed to escape. I really didn't know what she needed from me, as I wasn't sure how I could help. She didn't either, and I could tell she was scared just talking about it. She must have trusted me enough to continue the conversation, though. I motioned him to go on. So I think about it, he continues, and asks honestly where she is from. 
She tells me Texas. I think back to the clear bag and suddenly say, almost to myself, expressway to Texas, the train ticket. He nods yes, but he couldn't hand her the ticket directly for fear of someone seeing. He tells me he could find some old clothes for her and took them away in an alley with the ticket folded inside, a place only she would know, a hidden place where she could change and disappear. Across from me, my new companion begins to cry. She thanked me. Then through the tears of her own, she tells me everything. He covers his eyes with his hands, trying to control himself. Trying to be sympathetic, but also needing to know, I ask, what do you mean by everything? What happened last night? Several minutes passed before my friend could regain his composure. Finally, he answered, we met last night, here. I told her where I hid the clothes and the ticket. She left here around 11 p.m. I wrote my number on the back of the receipt and asked her to call me as soon as she arrived, along with a few dollars to get something to eat while on the train. I sat back in the booth, trying to take it all in. My head was swimming. She had the train ticket and the clothes, but what happened after that? As I sat in my haze, the man told me to check out the hotel on Vine, room 3A. Everything else I needed to know would be there. I asked him why he's helping if he knows it could be dangerous, to which he merely replied, Amy deserves justice. I exited the diner in a fog and let the sunlight soak in my skin. Some of the puzzle had been solved, while others remained elusive. Who was this candy, and how was I to find her? I thrust my hands in my coat pockets and made my way towards Vine, where everything would change. The hotel was a year away from being condemned. Bits of the roof had fallen, crumbling to the ground. Paint and plaster lined the bottom of the walls. Everywhere felt dirty, and as I walked into the lounge towards the desk, I could feel my shoes sink into the carpet. The man behind the counter barely looked up at me from his magazine. Fifty dollars for an hour, he says. I tell him I'm just visiting, looking for the occupant in room 3A. The desk clerk stiffens up, slowly lifting his eyes to meet mine. Room's occupied, my friend, and has requested not to be disturbed. I place my hands on the desk and stare at the clerk. He stares back. Small beads of sweat begin to form in his forehead. Without speaking, I rush past the desk and up the stairs. The desk clerk screams out for me to stop and begins to chase after me. I leap two stairs at a time and I'm on the third floor in a matter of minutes, with the clerk not too far behind. The room was at the top of the stairs to the left. I try the handle, but it's locked. I turn to face the desk clerk, now approaching the third floor landing, and demand he open the door. He refuses and yells at me to leave before things begin to get serious. I pull out my badge and thrust it in his face and again demand the door be open. The badge scares him, but rather than locking the door, he turns and heads back downstairs, saying he can't as he doesn't have a key. I try the door again, but this time I notice the lock is different from the others on the floor. It's a deadbolt that only locks from the outside. Pulling my revolver from the coat, I shoot the lock twice before kicking the door and entering the room. And I stand there, stunned. The bed is small, too small for an adult. The blankets covering it are pink and blue with yellow faded flowers. Stuffed toys are piled on the pillow. Along the back wall sat two dollhouses, on either side a wooden basket filled with dolls and toy clothes. On the small mirror a picture is tucked in the frame showing Amy and another woman, most likely her mother. Next to the bed is a pile of clothes smelling of smoke and sweat. I dig through them, not sure what I was looking for. I pulled things apart frantically, not wanting to believe what I was thinking. 
Then I find it. Tucked behind the bed, a purse. I sit on the bed and unzip it. My hand reaches in and pulls out an ID. Amy Sullivan, Maryvale Junior High. I drop the purse. She was only 13, I say to myself. A child. Moments later, two officers show up with guns drawn. Detective, is that you? I sit for a long time behind my typewriter, not knowing how to write out my report. Or maybe not really wanting to. I turn to look out the window while taking long drags on my cigarette. My tumbler hasn't been dry since my return. Eventually I type out what I can, pull the paper from the rings and place it in the file. I groan as I put out the cigarette and stand up. I feel the weight of the file between my hands. I make my way down the hall to the cabinet where I stuff it in with the others. The chief comes out of his office, only I don't listen. My mind is elsewhere, far away. Re-entering my office, I notice a woman sitting opposite my desk, blonde with a blue dress on. I ask if I can help her. I could tell by her eyes she hasn't slept in days. She tells me she needs to report a missing person, her sister. She hasn't seen her in a few days and has gotten worried. I wave to the door and explain that missing persons is down the hall. She breathes out and says thank you, but doesn't move. I ask if there's anything else I could help her with. Do you mind if I just sit here a second? I just need to talk. About anything, really. I just need to hear another voice, she says to me. I nod okay and sit back behind my desk, resting my head in my hand, eyes half closed. My guest begins to tell me about her sister, how they were spending time in the city for a few weeks before going home. I half listen as the woman explains to me how the last time she saw her was outside a restaurant. Her sister had gone in to use the restroom, while she wanted to peruse a local floral shop. Dandelions she likes. She is worried because her sister looks older than she really is, and people tend to treat her differently. I began to listen more closely now, and it's only when I hear a crunch I open my eyes. The woman's mouth was moving back and forth as though chewing on something. My eyes follow her hands as it moves down to her crossed legs. There, sitting next to her, like so many leaves, was a pile of candy wrappers. I sit up straight and stare at her. The woman keeps talking, seemingly unaware of my reaction. I ask her what her sister's name is. The woman ignores my question and keeps on talking. After a while, she asks, Do you think she got tired of me and just went home? Back to Austin? Perhaps she met someone. It worries me so what could have happened to her. I sit and stare at her speechless. The woman stops talking and looks over my shoulder at the window. I've been bothering you enough. I will go fill out that report now. Thank you so much for listening. The woman stands, smoothing out her dress, her blue dress with pink little houses. She exits my office and makes her way down the hall. I watch as she turns the corner and is out of sight. I regain my senses and chase after her. By the time I descend the front steps to the station, she is gone. That evening, I put in a request for a leave of absence and begin my search. Every night, I drive the city looking for any signs of the woman, sitting up all night in the diner where Amy ate her last meal. But she is a ghost, evanced into the city walls and lights. I haven't slept in a month. The phone is ringing.